0: You may or may not know this. I didn't know it until I looked it up last week, but in the English language, there are 171,406 words. So there are a lot of words in the English language. Now, each of those words is divided into a category, and you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There are nouns, there are verbs, there are prepositions, there are adverbs, and then, of course, there are adjectives. Now, an adjective is a word that describes a noun. When you think of an adjective, it is a descriptive word. For example, you could say, yesterday was a hot day. Hot would be the adjective. You could say, this is a big room. The word big would be the room describing uh, uh, the word room. You maybe could say, this might be one we should all use. This sounds like it's going to be a great sermon right now. And the word great would be the adjective to describe the sermon. So adjectives are descriptive words. Now, that said, if I said to you, choose one adjective, any adjective you want to choose to describe heaven, What word would you use? You only could choose one. you got to think a little bit on that. Some of you might say, man, only one word to describe heaven? I think I would use the word beautiful because in heaven, in the Bible, we read how heaven is going to be so absolutely beautiful. And if we were in class and I were the teacher, I would give you an A for that. Some would say, well, that's a good word, but I think I would use the word wonderful because, man, everything about heaven is going to be so wonderful. You would get an A for that word. Some would say, you know, I think if I were having to describe heaven with only one word, I would use the word indescribable. Because how can we as humans describe the sights and the sounds and everything that's going to be like in heaven? And I would give you an A for that. That's a great word. But if I were the student and you were the teacher and you said, John, you can only use one word to describe heaven, one adjective, what would it be? I think, now I've thought about it all week, but I know what word I would use. I would use the word perfect. Because heaven, above and beyond everything else, is a perfect place. Now, we know that when we get to heaven, we're going to have perfect bodies, right? There'll be no more aging, no more sickness, no more pain. None of that's going to be up in heaven, so that'll be perfect. We also know that heaven itself is a perfect environment. There'll be no sin in heaven, and we won't even be tempted to sin. So I think the word perfect really describes heaven probably maybe better than any other word. Now, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter number four, I want us to think about some other things that are going to make heaven perfect. And I'll tell you before we get started, in your outline you see four points. I'm only going to preach two of those points, so that should make this sermon more perfect for you, right? We just cut it in half right there. Heaven is going to be a perfect place. Now, Let's pick up where we left off last week. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, John is describing this experience where he was taken up into heaven. And in the Spirit, he got to go to heaven and see things that were going on up there. And he says, verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on that throne. And so John has a vision, he's taken to heaven, and he sees God. And he sees God seated on his throne. It's interesting, in this chapter, the word throne is used 13 times. 11 times it refers to the throne upon which God sits. In the book of Revelation, somebody has said, you could call this book the throne book because in revelation the word throne is used 45 times and in the rest of the new testament it only appears 15 times and so the the whole idea of a throne god's throne in heaven the place upon which god sits is a big deal and now john is having a vision he's experiencing that he's in heaven and he's seeing this and as he describes it in verse 3 and he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And so as John is seeing God seated on his throne, he uses the the analogy of a Jasper and a Sardius stone. Now turn if you would to Revelation chapter 21. I want us to think about what, what this Jasper stone, what that must be like. In Revelation 21 John is describing heaven. Now, remember, in chapter 4, he's describing God and the throne of God. Now, he's describing the entire city of heaven. And in Revelation 21, second half of verse 10, he says, The great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, and then he, descri- he defines jasper, clear as crystal he's probably describing a diamond here that's what john sees he's he's trying all this light coming out and we know that a diamond refracts all the different Colors that there are of light. So he's seeing, he's seeing this. He's seeing all this light around the throne of God. And then he says, uh, back in chapter 4, this uh, sardius stone. Sardius stone, most likely, is, was talking about there was a red color around the throne of God. So I want you just to try to get this in your mind. I know we haven't been to heaven. We've not seen what John saw. But I want you to try to imagine a huge throne in heaven. And sitting on that throne is God. And the brilliance of the light is absolutely amazing. Light is being refracted like from a diamond, and the dominant color around this throne appears to be the color red, and that would certainly be a reminder to us throughout eternity of the blood of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to go to heaven and to be with God in the first place. And then he describes not only the throne and the, these, all these colors, but he says, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And so emerald is talking about a greenish color. So a rainbow is multicolored. But the dominant color in this rainbow appears to be the color green. And so we know from the scriptures in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 16, it says that God dwells in unapproachable light. In other words, if we went to heaven today in our human bodies and with our human eyes, undoubtedly the brightness of heaven would blind our eyes. We couldn't, we couldn't behold all this coming from the throne of God. But when we get to heaven, we'll have new bodies and we'll have new eyes. And with our new eyes, we will be able to see all this light that is coming out from God and from the presence of God and from the throne upon which he sits. Now, as we think about why is heaven perfect? Why did I I choose the word "perfect" to describe heaven. I wish you had jotted this down in your outline today. First of all, in heaven, we will have perfect understanding. Perfect understanding. I love this phrase in the third verse, where it, as he describes this rainbow, he says there was a rainbow around the throne, not just above the throne but around the throne. When after a big storm happens in our world, when the storm's over, many times we go outside and we see a rainbow. It, it goes from one spot to another spot. It's above the earth, but we only see part of the rainbow. We only see the bow. But in heaven, John said, I'm, so, I'm seeing something I've never seen. Not only God, and his throne. But around the throne, I am seeing a complete circle. I'm seeing a full rainbow which says to me that in heaven, we will be able to understand things more clearly than we understand on earth. Isn't that what it's like on earth? We go through problems and challenges and heartache and pain, and we're not able to see the purpose uh, behind all that and all the things that God has in mind or why God would have allowed that. Chris was... Sharing about how at that youth camp years ago he broke his ankle. Well, at the time he broke his ankle, he couldn't see what God had in mind. He didn't have any way of knowing that God was going to use that broken ankle to get his mind off of basketball and onto him and onto what he might want him to do with his life. But in heaven, we will have a clear and a perfect understanding of all the things that have happened on earth. First of all, we'll have a perfect understanding of the difficulties of life. We don't understand. Somebody gets cancer today. Somebody loses their job today. A loved one dies today. Somebody loses uh, their home today. Somebody's house burns. And we don't understand, not fully, why God would allow those things to happen. We sing the old song, uh, farther along we'll know all about it. And that's true. When we get to heaven, we will know all about it. But down here on earth, we can't really understand. God, why would you allow this to be going on? Why? The, the, old, the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we don't know the full answer of that. Sometimes we go through something and, and we don't know why God allowed it. Years go by, we look back on it like Chris did with his injury. And he says, well, now it makes sense. But see, in heaven, everything will make sense. That thing you're going through right now in your family or in your personal life that makes absolutely no sense to you, there's coming a day when it will make perfect sense. When you get to heaven, you will have perfect understanding. You will know just as you are now known by God. But not only will we have perfect understanding of the difficulties and the heartache and the pain, we'll have a perfect understanding of the faithfulness of God. That's what a rainbow really symbolizes, right? God's promise back in Genesis 9 after God had flooded the earth and everybody had been killed except for Noah and his family. God said to Noah, Noah, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky and it's going to be a sign to you and to everybody else. Every time you look up in the sky and see that rainbow, it will be a reminder that I will never flood the earth like that again. I'll never do it again. And so, the rainbow points to God's promises. It points to God's faithfulness. And so, what does this have to do with us in heaven? Everything. When we get to heaven we will be able to look back on everything we went through in life and see that not only did God have a purpose for the difficulty, but God was faithful. God's promises were true. God's presence was there. God's grace was sufficient at every turn and through everything we went through in life. And so I want to just pause right here today. And I know this is a very devotional life application truth, but that's what we need. And I want to just say to those of you here today who are going through something that makes no sense to you, I want to encourage you. Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense to God. And just because it doesn't make sense to you now doesn't mean that it won't make sense to you one day. The fact is many of the things that we go through that don't make sense when we're going through them, they make sense even on earth years later. But even some things that will never make sense on earth... Eventually and ultimately, it will make sense when we get to heaven and when we have the mind of God. And so just remember this, it makes sense to God, and one day it will make sense to you. One of the things that, that I love about heaven and that I will love about heaven is that we will have perfect understanding. I really believe when we get to heaven, there are going to be a lot of aha moments. I think we're going to say to God, God, I had no idea. God, I never would have dreamed. God, I never knew that you allowed me to go through that so that through that experience you could grow my faith so that through that experience you could purify my character. God, so that through that experience, through that broken heart, you could minister more effectively through me. God, I never knew that's why you allowed that into my life. Everything will make sense when we get to heaven. So it doesn't make sense now. We know it will make sense then. So what do we do in the meantime? We choose to walk by faith. And we choose to say, God, I trust you. Now, God, I can only see the bow. I can only see the top half of the rainbow. But God, from your perspective, you see it all. And so now I walk by faith, not by sight. I walk by faith, not by feeling. I walk by faith, not by understanding. And I choose, God, to trust you with what will one day make sense. I'm saying to you that in heaven we'll have perfect understanding. But not only that, in heaven we'll have perfect understanding fellowship with each other. And this is one of the things that is going to make heaven so wonderful. The fellowship that we will have, the togetherness that we will have with one another. And folks, let's face it. We don't have perfect fellowship with each other now. We really don't. Fellowship gets broken. Things happen. Have you ever noticed in the course of a day how many times you say goodbye Even to your maybe your spouse or your parents or your children or your siblings or your friends. Even today at church, after the service is over, no doubt we'll all be talking to each other for a few minutes. And at the end of those conversations, what are we going to say? Have a good afternoon. See you tonight. See you next Sunday. Have a great week. So long. Bye. See you later. We spend much of our life telling people that we're close to goodbye. One of the things I'm thankful for is when we get to heaven, there will be no more goodbyes. When we get to heaven, there'll be no more hanging up of the phone. One of the things I'm going to love about heaven, there won't even be a phone. I don't like phones on earth. I'm clearly not going to be on there. But there will never be any goodbyes because we won't have to do that. Now, look in verse 4. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole chapter. And this verse is so loaded that last night when I was finishing this sermon, it was just like God said, you just park it right here and finish the sermon on this second point. So there's what we're going to do. John said, around the throne, that is around God's throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. <laughs> so John said, man, you need to understand, when I got to heaven and saw the throne of God and all this light coming out from it, I also noticed something else. Around that throne in a circle, there were 24 more thrones. And on these thrones, there were 24 elders. Now the question is, who are these people? Who are the 24 elders? There's some who say that the elders are angels, but we know that's not true for several reasons. First of all, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about angels having crowns of gold on their heads. And if you look in chapter 5 in verse 11, I'll show you something else. He's describing this heavenly scene. And John said, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures, and the elders. And so as John is describing what he saw around the throne of God, he makes a distinction between the angels and the elders. These elders are something separate from the angels. So the question is, who are these people? You study this passage, you're going to find that Bible scholars are in agreement that these 24 elders represent redeemed humanity. They represent people who have been saved, whose sins have been washed away with the blood of Jesus Christ. What does an elder do? An elder represents, the, even in a church today, we don't use that term much in, in our church, but, but what does an elder do? Or if there are elders in a church, you might call the staff. These are the elders in the church. What do they do? They represent the church. These 24 elders, what are they doing? They are representative of all of us who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. Just This is not necessarily life-changing, but it's interesting. There's some who say that 12 of these elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs, Jacob's sons, and the other 12 rec- represent the 12 apostles. And so there's some who believe that Peter, James, and John, they're part of these elders, and, and that Reuben and, and, and some of these other patriarchs, that they're part, Jacob's sons, that, that Dan and Asher, that they're part of these. Uh, You say, well, John, where would people get that? Go back to chapter 21. I I'm just want to show you this because I find it interesting. We have no way of knowing, by the way, if that's true. We're not told that half the elders are Old Testament saints and half the elders are the apostles. But, But we do have something in Revelation 21 that makes us at least give that some consideration. In verse number 12, as John is describing heaven, he said, Also, she had a great and high wall. So there's a high wall surrounding heaven. And with 12 gates. And with 12 angels at the gates. So to go into heaven, you have to walk through a gate. But to get through the gate, you have to get past an angel. Because the angels are guarding the gates. And names written on them. That is names written on the gates. Which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And so in heaven, there is... No question that these patriarchs from the Old Testament are honored in a very special way. Look in verse 14. He's describing the wall again. He said, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now we're talking about Peter and James and John and, and Thomas and Matthew and all 12 of the apostles. And so there's some who say that's what these are the 12 patriarchs and then the 12 apostles. Maybe so, maybe not. The point is that we do know these 24 elders represent redeemed humanity, they represent those of us who've been saved. And so, what is true of these 24 elders in that they are sitting around the throne? is also true of us. When we get to heaven, we will be around the throne of God. Think about that. First and most important, in the presence of God Himself. But not only that, we will be in perfect fellowship with one another. We'll be sitting together. I'll be able to see you. You'll be able to see me. We'll have for the first time in our lives unbroken fellowship. No more goodbye. No more see you later. No more hang up the phone. None of those things. We will be together in perfect and an unbroken fellowship for all eternity. Now, as I was thinking about this and I was thinking about life on earth, yours and mine, what causes, unbroken, what causes broken fellowship now? What causes uh, fellowship to be broken and for our fellowship with each other not to be perfect? I wrote out, and if if you're a note taker, you might want to just jot these four words down. The four D's that can break fellowship. The four D's that can break fellowship. And the first D is what I'm calling distance. Distance. And you've probably experienced this in your life. Certainly you have you grew up, you were in junior high and high school, and you had your best friend, and you saw your best friend every day, and then you graduated, and he went one way, and you went another way, and and, and it's not that you're out of fellowship. It's just that because y'all are living in different places now, you're not experiencing that same fellowship that you did. Distance can do that. I have a friend that I went to college with and, and seminary with, and she and I were like brother and sister, and we saw each other Virtually every day, talk to each other most every day. I mean, we were extremely close, and and yet now she lives in a different state, and I don't get to see her that much. I was thinking about her because I got a text message from her last week. She was just checking to see how things are going, and so when I got that, I thought, you know, used to I talked to her every day, and now she and her husband live in in Atlanta. And so I don't get to see him that much, don't get to talk to her that often. I'll tell you how close a friend she is. This is a true friend. When she got married years ago, I, for whatever reason, I was unable to go to her wedding. And you know, a lot of times if somebody invites you to the wedding and you don't go, they get mad at you. She was such a good friend, she didn't even get mad. But on the day of her wedding, I wanted to just call and tell her I love her and wish her well. And so I did. I was thinking her wedding was at night. Actually, her wedding was in the afternoon. I called. She answered the call. I said, hey, Sharon, I just want to tell you I love you. Congratulations. She said, John, you called it a bad time. I got to go. I said, why? She said, I'm fixing to walk down the aisle. (laughs) I said, well, you don't have a speaking part for a while. Just carry me down that aisle with you. Let's finish out this conversation. But I mean, just a treasured friend. But now... We never got. We're not broken fellowship. I'm just saying she lives there with her husband, and I live out here. She's still my sister. I just don't get to see her that often. Sometimes distance can do that. I'll tell you something else that can that can break fellowship, and this is really sad. Disagreements, disagreements. Here are two people. They're close. They're friends, and they get in a conversation about politics or something else, and one person sees it this way, and one person sees it that way, and so they get in an argument, and they allow that disagreement to break their fellowship, and it's a sad thing. You know, I mean, I, sometimes I get in conversations with people and we talk about politics and, and I tell them what I think and, and then they tell me what they think and what they think is 180 degrees from what I think. I mean, they are clearly wrong in their view. They're clearly wrong. But you know what I've learned? I've learned in life the issue is never as important as the relationship. What we're disagreeing about is not as important as our, as our relationship. And so I encourage you to say, hey, nobody's going to agree on everything, but just because you don't agree on a political issue or, or some other thing in life, or you know, don't let that issue be a wedge in your relationship. Try to keep that wedge together. I've learned through the years, one of the things I say if I'm talking to somebody and they say something that I think is just out in left field, I, instead of arguing with them, I say, you know, That is very interesting. Very interesting. That's my way of saying, I think you've lost your mind. (laughs) I mean, you've lost your your mind completely. So if I ever tell you that, that's very interesting. You know what I really think about your view on that issue. Or maybe now I'm going to have to change it and say, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So you won't know. But sometimes disagreements can break our fellowship. And it's sad. We should try our best not to let that happen. Something else that that can do that, difficulties in life. Here's a person with an illness. Here's a person who can no longer come to church. I think about our own church family. I think about the hundreds of members who have died in our congregation since we moved to this location. And I think about many more probably in the hundreds here who they're still living, but they're in assisted living. They're in a nursing home. Maybe they're still at home, but they can't drive anymore. They can't come to church. And so people that used to be here every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, we look around now, and they're not able to be here anymore. And so the fellowship has been broken. It's not that we're out of fellowship, not that there was an argument. it's just they can't be here. And sometimes the difficulties of life has a way of changing who we interact with and interface with on a daily and on a weekly uh, schedule. And then the fourth D, and this would be the biggest of all, of course, would be death. Death is the ultimate fellowship breaker. Somebody dies and they're gone from us. Even if they were saved, we thank God that they're in heaven, but they're not with us. I was counting up last night, and I may have miscounted. I may have undercounted, but I know for sure in the last three weeks, I have officiated six different funerals for people or families whom I am very close to, and some, many of those people who died, I knew very well, and so I was close to them. And as I was thinking about this Preparing this sermon, how death can separate us. What is it that is so hard about physical death? Let me ask you this question: Why do we cry when a loved one dies? Why do we cry? Is it because we have weak faith and we don't believe that they're in heaven? No. Is it because we have bad theology and we don't understand that they're better than they'll ever, than they no, it's not that. I'll tell you why we cry when our loved one dies, because we're human. And because as human beings, we have emotions. And the reason we cry when a loved one dies is not because our faith is weak, and it's not because our theology is bad. The reason we cry when a loved one dies is because we miss our loved one, and we can't call them anymore, and we can't run by their house anymore. We can't go to a ball game with him anymore and we can't go out to eat with him anymore and we can't see them anymore. That's the thing that's so hard about death. It's not that we don't know where they are. It's not that we don't know that they're doing great. It's the fact that our hearts are broken because our fellowship with them has temporarily been broken. The good news from this chapter today is and from these 24 elders around the throne is and what John is saying to us and what God is saying to us today for those of us and that's really all of us who have lost a loved one and our fellowship with them is temporarily broken there is coming a day when we will be around the throne of God and we will be back with them forever and for always perfect fellowship will be restored and we'll be with them, and they will be with us. Death is a separation. That's what the word death means. Separation. It's a separation of the soul from the body, but it's also a separation of one person from another person, at least temporarily. But there's coming a day when we will be reunited because Jesus Christ has conquered death. And so the pain we feel, though real, is temporary, and God even helps us through that. Now, you still listen say amen. As we think about all these things that can cause fellowship to be broken. And we think about life application. I, I want to I begin now to pull the train into the station. But I want to make two points of application here that I think are very, very important. Number one, if you have lost fellowship or experienced broken fellowship with another human being, I would encourage you this week, do everything within your power to restore that broken fellowship. I think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm paraphrasing now. But Jesus said, if you come to church and it's time to take up the offering and you bring your offering to the altar and you're reaching in your pocket to turn in your envelope, he said, if it comes to your mind that somebody has something against you, in other words, you have offended somebody else, Jesus said, take your gift out the door with you. Go make things right with that person and then come leave your gift at the altar. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, do everything within your power for there to be reconciliation, for there to be restoration, and for there to be peace. Now, we have to balance that teaching with everything the Bible says on that subject. And in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, Paul addresses that. And he said, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. What he's saying is sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes somebody might not like you, and there's not anything you can do about it. Now, we, we hope that never happens, but sometimes it does. And those cases are probably few and far between. But the point is, whether they like you or not, or even whether the relationship is restored or not, what the Bible is saying to us, we should do everything within our power to make peace with others. And even if their relationship is not stored, restored, and even if there's not peace... We should make sure that our heart toward that other person is pure and that we love them and that we would do, that we would do anything for them and that, that, that we pray God would bless them and that we don't have anything in our hearts toward them. Let me just say it this way. We should not have bad feelings in our heart for another human being. You say, John, what planet are you coming from to even think about a statement like that? Well, same planet. We live on the same planet. I'm just trying to come from the Bible on that. God would say to us yes, sometimes there may not be the restoration of the relationship, maybe out of your control, but you make sure in your heart that you have love towards every last person. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say today is if your loved one has already died and gone to heaven, How do, how do I, I want to tell a story. How do, I, how do I say this point? If that has happened, re- remember that one day you'll see them again. Let me tell you this brief story. I have a dear friend of mine. He and his wife lost their son many years ago. He was killed in a car accident. And I cannot even imagine the devastation that that would be. Some of you have been through that. But he was talking about that one day, and he was talking about how hard that was and how difficult that was for him and his wife. And he said... I heard him share this actually at at his birthday party not too long ago. He said, you know, when, when my wife and I lost our son, he said, I couldn't sleep at night. I had a hard time eating. I couldn't concentrate. He said, just life as I knew it had come to an end. And he said, I would wake up in the middle of the night. I couldn't go back to sleep. He said, it was absolutely horrible. And he said, then I started thinking with every passing day, He said, I started thinking, with every day that I live, I'm getting one day farther removed from my son. And he said, that even made it worse. And he said, I just about didn't think I was going to make it. And he said, "One in the middle of the night, I woke up, and he said, like a thought came to my mind. He said, I believe it was from, from God, was the heart of what he was saying. He said, and it was like God said to me, you're looking at this wrong. You're looking at it as though every day you're getting one day farther away from your son. He said, you need to look at it differently. And you need to look at it that every single day you live, you're getting to be one day closer to seeing your son again. With every step you take, you're one step closer to seeing your son again. I just share that today because I felt in my heart, somebody may need to hear that today. When we lose a loved one, do we grieve? Yes. Are we sad? Yes. Do we cry? Undoubtedly. But I think there would come a point out there where we would have to say, you know what, if I'm going to make it through this, I've got to look at this differently and I've got to know that one day, that every day I live I'm closer and closer to seeing my loved one again now as we think about heaven and heaven being perfect perfect understanding, perfect fellowship with each other. I mean, everything is just going to be perfect in heaven. I want to conclude this sermon. I'm going to say this today, and when we come back next Sunday and finish this sermon out, I've got the same conclusion this week that I'm going to have next week. And here is the conclusion, and I want you to think about this. Heaven is a perfect place for people who have been made perfect in God's sight by the blood of Jesus Christ, and by their faith in his blood. Now that's a mouthful right there. Notice I'm not saying heaven is a perfect place for perfect people, or else none of us would get to go, because there's not a one of us here today who is perfect. If you agree with that, say amen. It's a perfect place for people who have been made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ. And by faith in His blood. That is, we've been made perfect in God's sight. What does this mean? It means when God looks at me, God doesn't see all my sins. God doesn't see all the things I've done wrong. God has washed all that away in the blood of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at me, what does God see? God sees Jesus Christ cleansing me. God sees Jesus Christ covering me. God sees Jesus Christ wrapping me in his righteousness. And so when God sees me, think about this. Because of my faith in Jesus Christ, when God sees me, I get credit for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you today, is that what God sees when God sees you? Does God see your sins forgiven? Have you been, I'm not asking you if you are perfect, because we're not. I'm asking you, have you been made perfect? By the blood of Jesus Christ and by your faith in His blood. And if you haven't, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, would you pray this prayer today? In the privacy of where you're sitting, would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, I am far from perfect. God, I'm sinful. I've messed up. I've done wrong. And I'm sorry. I ask you, Jesus Christ, right now to come into my heart. Forgive all those sins. And make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. Tell him you trust him. That will settle it right there. I trust you, Jesus, with all my heart. Begin now to make me the person you want me to be. And Lord, during this next song, give me the courage to come forward to make that decision public. Others here today, you have prayed that prayer before today, but you've never confessed Christ in a public setting like this. Would you pray right now? Maybe some of our students. Got a good group of students over here today. Would you pray? Say, God, give me the courage today to make this decision public. Others here today, you've already been saved and You've made that confession, but you feel God leading you to come and join First Baptist Church today. Maybe it's your first time to worship with us. You feel it in your heart. God's leading you. Maybe you've been here many times. Would you just pray, God, give me courage to do what I need to do. In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, Amen and Amen.